welcome to Wits and Tantrums, a podcast where we review trinkets of issues that possess wits, depth, and capacity for tantrums on a five-star scale. I'm Wima Emanuel, and today I'll be reviewing historical moments of public expression of objection and disapproval as a response to ideas or actions that have caused discomfort to humanity. Often when I'm feeling sick, most likely when I have malaria due to the abundance of mosquitoes in my part of the world, I try to mask it, even though I fail at it every time. My eye sockets become sunken and my lips become chapped. Of course, these are features that don't help me in my quest for pretense, but I guess I should tell you why I try to mask it. There's an unnecessary attention that I receive when I am sick. People often feel the need to tell me what I was doing wrong, what to do here and after, and how to do it. Like for instance, my father once told me, you never tell us when you're ill because you spend too much time on your laptop working. So here I am, the work guy, working hard to tell you a tale or two about humanity's capacity for tantrums during times of discomfort and their sorry display of unity during these times. It's a story about protests. At the moment, I can't tell any other kind. We're often told to speak up whenever we feel uncomfortable. Like William Faulkner once wrote, Never be afraid to raise your voice for honesty and truth and compassion against injustice and lying and greed. If people all over the world would do this, it would change the earth. But of course, what worries me is the many factors that render this simple concept complex. Over the past couple of weeks, I found myself forced to witness the conflict between the people of different countries, mine inclusive, and their government, a situation that I've become all too familiar with over the past couple of years. And of course, this has made me stressed in ways that I cannot begin to explain. So while feeling despondent, I turned to history with a lot of questions about my present and, if possible, for perpetual assurance on my future, something I almost never do. 57 years ago, on Wednesday, August 28, 1963, the Great March on Washington happened, a protest to advocate for the civil and economic rights of African Americans. At the march, final speaker Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial, delivered his historic I Have a Dream speech, in which he called for an end to racism. It's a great speech, the journalist E. W. Kenworthy wrote in the New York Times, as he arose, a great roar welled up from the crowd. When he started to speak, a hush fell. I don't hear the speech very often, but when I do, I'm stopped cold when Dr. Martin says, We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is not time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or taking the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make the real promises of democracy. There's something about that first sentence, the fierce urgency of now, that a situation demands a change that cannot be implemented 
any other time than the present that tells me that the people involved have simply had more than enough. In times of protest, we bring out the bestial and unsatisfied sides of our human nature. But even more than that, we also end up displaying some form of surreal unity. For some, genuinely, and for others, the adherence to the proverb of a friend that is formed on the basis of a joint enemy. The turn-up for the Great March was simply massive. It was estimated that 250,000 people showed up to protest, with 75-80% to 80% of the marchers being black. The march was one of the largest political rallies for the human rights in United States history. This wasn't unwarranted of course, because even though enslaved African Americans were legally freed from slavery, granted citizenship and granted full voting rights, conservative Democrats regained power and imposed many restrictions on quote, people of color. At the turn of the century, southern states passed constitutions and laws that disenfranchised most blacks and many poor whites. Excluding them from the political system, blacks suffered discrimination from businesses, they were prevented from voting, and in 21 states, they were prohibited from interracial marriages. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin began planning the march in December of 1961. They envisioned two days of protests to focus on joblessness and to call for a public works program that would employ blacks. On May 15, 1963, Randolph and Rustin then intended to focus the march on economic inequality, stating in the original plan that, quote, integration in the fields of education, housing, transportation, and public accommodations will be of limited extent and duration so long as fundamental economic inequality along racial lines persists. As they negotiated with other leaders, they expanded their stated objectives to jobs and freedom, to acknowledge the agenda of groups that focused more on civil rights. The march was part of the rapidly expanding civil rights movement, which involved demonstrations and non-violent direct action across the United States. Leaders represented major civil rights organizations members of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference put aside their differences and came together for the march. Many whites and blacks also came together in the urgency for change in the nation. Representative John Lewis, chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee wrote, we are tired we are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. On May 24, 1963, Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy invited African-American novelist James Baldwin along with a large group of cultural leaders to a meeting in New York to discuss race relations. However, the meeting became antagonistic as black delegates felt that Kennedy did not have an adequate understanding of the race problem in the nation. 
the public failure of the meeting which came to be known as the Baldwin Kennedy meeting underscored the divide between the needs of black America and the understanding of Washington politicians. To learn about the Great March and what it stood for, or better yet, what it stood against, is to learn about the importance of speaking up during trying times, to get together in numbers with one goal in mind, and to lend each other our voices with hope that the fierce urgency of now can be communicated. Eli Wiesel, a Romanian-born American writer, wrote, We must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. And for me, this feels absolute, like a law that is supreme but doesn't appear to be seen as such. When speaking to Dr. Kenneth Clark in 1963, Baldwin describes the experience of meeting a 16-year-old boy who declared, I've got no country, I've got no flag. Baldwin then goes on to explain, I couldn't say to him, you do have a country. I couldn't. I don't have any evidence to prove that he does. For me, the most gotten repetition in protest accounts is the exposure of the adolescents who were forcibly made aware of their situation of unsafety as soon as they could walk. And then many years later, from this we have youths actively taking huge roles in protests. Christoph Alberts, a youth rights activist in Germany, says, At the moment, we have to fight for our rights even more. Generational conflict is putting us at a risk, and I do wonder what our futures will be like. We have to be loud, and we want to reclaim our right to a better future. Christoph has a point, that we are born into the crosshairs of the battles of those that came before us, is simply, for lack of a better word, highly unethical. Like, even my fate basically tells me about its improbability, as seen in Ezekiel 18.20, when God, in talking to Ezekiel, says, The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. After the break, I'll turn my attention to the nonsense that is our response to protest, but first... It is not always the easiest thing to do, to stand up to voice your discomfort, usually to an authority. For protest, while fighting for your future, your presence may not be guaranteed, and sometimes nothing is gained, and so much is lost. In acts leading up to the Great March, protesters were often met with resistance. Water cannons were fired on young African Americans during a protest against segregation organized by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. The protest began peacefully, with several demonstrators urging police to take a knee in support of the movement, but some intensified as cities enacted curfews and officers enforced those curfews through the use of tear gas rubber bullets, and in an escalation of events in the nation's capital, a heavy military presence. Meanwhile, some people began looting and rioting, injecting confusion and disorder into the early days of the demonstrations, 
In most cases, white people attacked non-violent demonstrators seeking civil rights. In the same year, there was a bombing of a church. The church served as a meeting place for civil rights activists like Dr. King. Four girls reportedly died from the bombing. And so, in fear of death and in hope of survival, many don't often come out to protest. To do otherwise would be to risk your own life and the lives of your loved ones. And that is part of the human story, that we have not just taken rights from people, we have been violent toward them when they respond in discomfort. This compounds the injustice of the Anthropocene, which almost always puts a target on the back of those that protest. Of course, how we protest is just as important. Protests aren't always about rallying a vast majority of the population. There are other ways. Like, some of my least favorite include riots and mob violence, and direct attacks to the cause of the situation. In my first year of being in the university, while playing a game of chess, I heard a guy boast of his violent response to a guy he presumed gay. He hit the guy in the face because the guy just touched his shoulder while trying to say hello, thus making him uncomfortable. I'm not a fan of a stranger touching me, but I am less in support of hitting them as a way to voice your discomfort. The Great March was without a doubt one of the largest protests in history. With it came enough power to draw out responses decades to come, even till this very moment. And you would think that so far after all these acts of defiance that we would be free, but we aren't. My country has been protesting against police brutality. Horror and suffering abound in every direction. And I want this podcast to be a break from it for you and for me. But still, it makes its way in like light through window blinds and like flood water through shut doors. It occurs to me that you are listening in my future, a fact that has always been true but now seems relevant. Maybe you are listening in a future so distant from my present that this is all over. I mean, over half a century from the first acts of protest and we still have the need to, so maybe it would not be over, but maybe it will be a future where this is better. And I hope you are living in it, and I hope I am living in it with you. But in the meantime, we have to live in this. We haven't been met with the finest reply. Quite a number of people have been lost in the protests. It makes me feel empty. The irony that we have to protest against the ones who were to protect us, that we have to protest against their actions against us with our very dear lives on the line. But I guess that's what protesting is all about, taking control of our lives. It reminds me of a poem by Claude McKay called If We Must Die that reads, if we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and penned in an inglorious spot, while around us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain, that even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honour us, though dead. O kinsmen, we must meet the common foe.
Though far outnumbered, let us show brave, and for their thousand blows they won death blow. What though before us lies the open grave? Like men will face the murderous cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying but fighting back. It is only fair, of course, that we ask to be treated fairly and not like the savages described in that poem, not by the ones who were called to protect us anyways. And so, in the meantime, we meet up in the hallowed grounds to lend our voices to the fierce urgency of now. If you have been part of the protest in any way, in the words of Josephine Baker, the singer who had flown in from her home in Paris for the Great March, when speaking to the thousands of protesters, you are on the eve of a complete victory. You cannot go wrong. The world is behind you. I give protest four stars, but our response to it something between bitter and can be better. Thank you for listening. I would like you to lend your voice by simply going on Twitter or any social media platform of choice and letting the whole world know that you do not stand for police brutality using the hashtag NSARS. If you have a topic you would like to suggest for review or just to say hi, send me a message at witantantrums at gmail.com. I'll leave you today with a snippet of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. The name is quite long. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy.